Father God, thank you that we can worship you this morning. Thank you for those that are watching from home, and thank you for these folks that have come out on a really cold Sunday morning. Uh, thank you for the blessing of getting to lift up our voices and redirect our hearts so that we're reflecting rightly about this time of year and what you did, the coming of Jesus. Would you speak to us this morning as we look at your word? For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, the prophet Isaiah writes these words in Isaiah 9. He says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Uh, we are being told at present to get ready for a long, dark winter. Who said that? The infamous Dr. Fauci, right? You love him or you hate him, don't you? Yeah. And that is actually how many people uh, have been feeling, sort of really for the last eight months, long before winter set in. There's some gloom and there's some distress. Vacations have been canceled. Uh, holidays have, for many, been at home with very few loved ones around them. Kids are doing school from home. Parents are working from home. That's a great combination, by the way, <laughs> right there. Uh, it sort of feels like we've been living in the land of the shadow of death. This morning, I want to talk about a couple of central but sometimes neglected messages uh, of Christmas. Uh, in our secular culture, most years, Christmas is all about shopping or uh, picture-taking, family pictures, card-sending, uh, putting up of lights, taking them down later on, decorations, gift-wrapping and unwrapping, family gatherings, parties, eggnog and toasts, the giving of gifts, children and Santa, year-end sales, and for some families, family trips. But this year, for many maybe even most, it's going to be a little different. Uh, this year, the weird year, the year of the pandemic, it's masks on, it's social distancing, uh, it's limited size gatherings, and much, much worse for some, it's the loss of a job, the closing of a business, it's opportunity loss, uh, it's loss of community, and for some, it's a loss of an election uh, for half the country, right? And, uh, but then, by far... And this is no laughing matter. By far the worst is the loss of someone loved. And the truth is, there's a lot of weariness in the world this year. There's a lot of fatigue and a, a lot of joylessness. Restaurants, bars, beauty shops, small retail business, so many of them are either closed or at 50% capacity and that kind of thing. As I said, many schools and school districts have been closed, and that's meant stay-at-home learning, right? Which some have observed as often little more than just parent-supervised computer time. Uh, not a lot of learning is actually taking place, many feel. So while stress levels in families are way up, happiness levels are way down. Um, this is according to the 2020 World Happiness Report. There really is such a thing. You can check on it. 
uh, when looking at the impact of COVID-19 on life satisfaction in the United States, happiness is down more than 9%, which is a very significant shift from the previous year. The happiness level was low. Uh, during this past year, uh, one of the things we've observed is unrest on the streets, homelessness is on the rise, crime is on the rise. An article in the New York Post entitled Crime is Killing U.S. Cities, this was December 7th, we read, uh, we read these words. Last week, New York City reported a 95% year-on-year increase in shootings for the first 11 months of the year. Last month, Washington, D.C. hit 167 homicides, which means the federal capital had more killings by November than it did for all of last year. The slay total is the highest in 12 years. Chicago, Philadelphia, Seattle, Memphis, and Minneapolis, that last, the epicenter of the uh, hashtag defund the police movement, are all setting new records. The blood splashed and bullet Castings strewn across our streets spell disaster, end quote. Now, politicians do what politicians do, and that is you blame the individuals on the other side of the aisle, and they claim that they have the answers, but they just need your vote, and they need a few more tax dollars. And all this kind of makes you want to sigh or cry, depending on how much it bothers you. And uh, honestly, I would observe that People these days are weary and uh, have many good reasons to be weary. We're left scrambling for answers. We're left looking for fixes. But all too often, the answers and the fixes, they, they just conflict with each other. Uh, one expert says, wear a mask. And another one says, wearing masks won't do anything. <laughs> uh, one expert says, social distance. And then somebody observes, well, social distancing is isolating and killing us in other ways. One expert says shut down businesses, small businesses where people gather in too large of numbers. And others say, well, let businesses police themselves. One expert says shut down schools. Another one says get kids back into school. They need that socialization and they don't carry, it seems, the virus as much as some older in the older population. And so Dr. Fauci may be right. We are entering or are already in a long, dark winter. The passage that we read a moment ago from Isaiah 9 is a famous Christmas passage. Uh, it's often read in churches at this season of the year, but I have a hunch that it's often not very well understood, let alone embraced. And my hope this morning is that uh, we can better understand it and then receive the hope that's being announced in this passage. In Isaiah 9:1, it begins with an important word, and the word is nevertheless. Uh, that's important because it tells us that what is said in Isaiah 9 is wholly uh, dependent on, and the context for it um, is Isaiah 8. And 9 is not going to make a lot of sense unless we understand Isaiah chapter 8. And it's in Isaiah chapter 8 that we read these words. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. And then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. What's happening in Isaiah 8 is the people are crushed. 
The people are confused. They are brokenhearted. They are distressed. They are hungry. They are devastated by evil. They are overcome with their suffering. And here's what's been going on. God has been warning these people. This is Israel, the northern kingdom. God has been warning them with the prophets that he has sent their way. And they just basically haven't been listening. They've been ignoring what God has been saying to them for many, many years. And so now God is punishing them for their own good because that's what a parent does. Always punishes a child for that child's own good. And what they do is, from their punishment, is they curse their political leaders, the kings. But even worse, they also curse their God. Where are you, God? Why is this happening to us? And what's happening to them is literally it's the nation, the empire of Assyria has come south and is conquering the northern kingdom and is causing a great deal of misery and taking many of these people back to exile. But also there's, there's military conquest. Cities are being burned. Populations are being murdered, pillaged, and they are also being taken off into exile. And so we're told that in their desperation... There in verse two, uh, chapter 8, verse 22, it says they look toward the earth. And what they're looking for is answers. But if you do that, if you look toward the earth, if you reject God, if you curse God, if you deny God's existence and don't listen to him and obey him, well, where do you find hope or answers for the suffering and the problems in this world? In our day, many think that uh, you'll find these things by electing the right politicians. That's where the answers are. Or by trusting in the right doctors or the right academicians or the right researchers. And okay, a lot of people look to those places for hope and you can do that if you want. The Apostle Paul, when he was writing to a church at Corinth, said this. He said, Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom. Interesting observation. Greeks believed that education was the light in the darkness, that the rational mind would figure out what's best for people, all people. And the world will be saved by great thinkers and great ideas and great technologies. And so therefore, hope in academia, hope in science, hope in the right philosophy. And that was essentially the view also many, many years later of the Enlightenment. And it's essentially the view of secular elitists today, not much new under the sun. The idea that we can educate ourselves, improve ourselves into a place that's better, a place that maybe even could be a utopia. <laughs> but how's that working for us? How's that idea producing results? The Jews, the Apostle Paul said, were different. They didn't believe that the key was better schools or having a better philosophy. The, the Jews, it says, Paul says, demand signs. And what that's saying is they demanded signs that would identify their Messiah and understand their Messiah in their mind was their religious, political deliverer. That's what they thought their Messiah would be. He would overthrow their oppressors, get rid of them. He would set up his kingdom and make Israel a great nation again. And so for the Jews, they believed that their mess, their crisis, was more than anything else a crisis of leadership. They needed a Messiah, the right leader. In Isaiah 8, what it's doing is it presses home the question, will looking to the earth, will rejecting God 
Well, put the, putting our hope in creating whatever, better schools, better businesses, better economics, or for that matter, better laws, better leaders, better vaccines, better technologies, will that be the light that we need in our darkness? Another way of asking that is, will that save us? Will it really? And so for centuries, friends, many people have believed that it would. That was, that was an idea back then, but it's the same idea that's prevalent today. There's an interesting thinker, some would say a great thinker and writer, a political activist, a social critic by the name of H.G. Wells. And he wrote a book uh, that was very popular in its day. It was published in 1922, just four years after World War I ended in 1918. And he wrote these words, Excuse me. He said, can we doubt that presently our race will more than realize our boldest imaginations, that it will achieve unity and peace, and that it will live, the children of our blood and lives will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any place or garden that we know, going on from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of adventure and achievement. What man has done, the little triumphs of his present state, and all this history we have told form but the prelude to the things that man has got to do. Years optimism, massively, massively optimistic. The incredible hope that he placed in science, in man's ability to improve himself, social democracy, and social institutions. He says, we're changing. We are getting better and better. We are on the way up. What possibly could stop us? And then World War II came along. After World War II, he wrote another book. It's uh, called uh, A Mind at the End of Its Tether. This is just nine years later, nine years later. And in that book, he wrote these words. He said, the cold-blooded massacres of the defenseless, the return of deliberate and organized torture, mental torment and fear to a world from which such things had seemed well nigh banished has come near to breaking my spirit altogether, he says. Homo sapiens, which means literally man the wise, as he has been pleased to call himself, is played out. (laughs) Wow, his perspective sure changed. He's become a hopeful almost buoyant individual looking to the future to someone who is now played out. H.G. Wells observes exactly what the passage in Isaiah is saying, and that is that human beings by themselves are not getting better. They are not improving. In spite of science, in spite of things like social democracies, which is what a lot of people put their hope in back then, and as it turns out, many kind of today as well, uh, social institutions, uh, these things are not improving humankind. Human beings without God are, according to Isaiah 8, distressed and hungry, roaming through the land, raging at their king, and also raging at God. And that, my friends, is the first message of Christmas, that this world we live in actually is a dark place. And it cannot save itself. That's one of the most important messages of Christmas. We sometimes forget that the coming of Jesus was shrouded in darkness and tragedy. Matthew 2 tells us that when Herod realized he had been outwitted by the Magi, you remember he was furious. 
So much so he gave orders to kill all of the boys in Bethlehem's vicinity who were two years and under. The prophet Isaiah spoke of that many centuries earlier, and and Matthew picks it up as a foretelling of what was going to happen. Uh, It's Jeremiah 31. It says, A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. And this is a part of the Christmas story that always gets written out of children's plays, understandably. This crazy, crazy juxtaposition that at the very moment people are celebrating the good news of great joy that, were, that will be for all the people, that message that the angels announced to the shepherds. Well, because of this same event, the birth of Jesus Christ, the parents of a small town in Bethlehem are struck with tragedy and disaster because their kids were in the wrong place at the wrong time and became the victims at the hand of a maniacal killer named Herod. The point not to miss is that the good news of the coming of Jesus is juxtaposed with the massacre of children. And that's fair warning, friends, that life on earth is a battleground Ever since the fall of man into sin, that's the way it's always been. The world is a dark place, and no one has been able to fix it. There's very little new under the sun. One author writes these words. He says, I'm staggered by the level of naivete that most people have with regard to evil. They don't take it seriously. They don't live as though the story, he's talking about the story of the history of life. They don't live as though the story has a villain. Not the devil prancing about in red tights carrying a pitchfork, but the incarnation of the very worst of every enemy you've ever met in every other story. Dear God, he says, the Holocaust, child prostitution, terrorist bombings, genocidal governments, and we could add pandemics. What is it going to take for us to take evil seriously? C.S. Lewis uh, said something similar. He said, when he read the New Testament for the first time seriously, instead of trying to dismiss it, but trying to absorb it and understand it. He said he was surprised to discover that it talks so much about a dark power in the universe. That was a surprise to him. A mighty evil that is behind things like rape and war and slavery and disease and and sin and death. And he too noted that this tells us, and, and I quote, that the universe is at war. At war. Some people hear that and think, well, come on, that's a bunch of hocus pocus. That's nonsense. Good versus evil. Angels versus demons. God versus the devil. That's ridiculous. You know, that's all supernatural kinds of nonsense. But, you know, a fair question to put to anyone is how do you explain the world we live in? How do you explain the evil that is so present in our world and in us? How do you explain that? Where does it come from? Why does it never go away? Why can't we fix it and engineer it out of us? And the Bible, friends, quite honestly, has the best, most robust answer to questions of that nature and always has. You see, evil at its heart is opposing and denying and rebelling and cursing against the one true good and living God. 
That's what evil is and does. God is the one great truth that qualifies every other truth. So the reason human beings can be such noble creatures on occasion is because we are made in the very image of this one true, good, and living God. But at the same time, the reason we can be such evil and ignoble creatures is because we oppose and we deny and we rebel and we curse this very same God. You see, God alone makes the world we live in a moral universe. It's his presence, it's his existence that does that. that. Some things are right and some things are wrong because of God. God alone is the one who makes this world in which we inhabit a place of perfect accountability. Judgment is coming. Justice will be done. God alone is the one that makes this world in which we live a purposeful cosmos. And that purpose is to love God and enjoy him forever. That is our greatest and deepest purpose. That's where history is going. Some people will be judged, but some will love God and enjoy him forever. History is moving toward that purpose. And that right there is the only thing that offers human beings any hope certain hope, lasting hope at all. Another uh, individual, Julian Huxley, uh, Huxley died in 1975. He was an English evolutionary biologist. Uh, He was also a eugenicist. He he believed in selective breeding to improve the species. He was also a humanist, but he was a very honest humanist. He said that all of science and all of reason and all of research and all of academia will never be able to answer three questions. We'll never be able to answer the question, what is the purpose of life? We'll never be able to answer the question, how did human beings get into the mess that we're in? We'll never be able to answer the question, how can we get out of it? So he said we should just quit asking those questions because there are, in other words, are no answers for them. And... um, He was right. Those things are not going to answer those questions. Uh, He's still right. Science, reason. In other words, looking to the earth. That's how Isaiah phrases this. Looking to the earth will never answer those questions. But the Bible does. The message of Christmas is that the world is a dark place. Evil is very real. And the more you look to the earth for answers or solutions to it, the darker it all gets. Things just get worse and worse. That's Isaiah chapter 8. But then Isaiah 9 opens up with that single word of hope. And the word is nevertheless. Nevertheless. Yes, things are dark, but nevertheless. There will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. The important thing I think to notice there is that the people who were walking in darkness have seen a great light. They didn't generate it. They didn't think it up. They didn't kindle it. They didn't create it. They simply saw it. It was revealed to them. It shone down on them, which tells us that hope and light are not something we're going to generate. 
They are from beyond us. The world cannot and will not be able ever to save itself uh, any more than it can create or sustain itself. There is someone outside the materialistic realm, the creator, the sustainer, the fixer of the mess. And that is precisely why this great light shined down and came into darkness. Christmas tells us that even though the world is dark, there is evil, there is suffering, there is disease, there will continue to be Never. Nevertheless, there's also hope, real hope, ultimate hope, overcoming hope because Jesus has come and light has dawned in him. And his light is piercing through the darkness and it is spreading. That's the message of Christmas. He came, he intervened, he got involved. He lived, he died, he rose again, all to fix the problems that are so deep and unfixable by any of us. He overcame the evil and the brokenness and the sin and the untruth, the hatred, the disease, the death. Jesus brings light and hope to our dark world. And he does this from the outside, up there, coming down here. That's the incredible hope of the incarnation. And that's why we celebrate, because there is a God who sent his son into the world. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Christmas gives us hope and light in a time of darkness, and darkness has always been present, whether out there or in here. And when we experience darkness because we are finite and because we are limited and we cannot and we do not know what God is often up to in things that come our way or things that we suffer or difficulties that overwhelm us. We often ask in times like that, why God would you allow this to happen? And this, of course, could be anything from COVID-19 to the loss of a loved one to failure of your health to troubles with a child, financial setbacks. The list is long. Why God? And oftentimes, the deeper the pain for us, the less satisfying the answers are that we give ourselves. And honestly, most of the time, the only answer to why the darkness, why the suffering, why this God is, I don't know. I don't know specifically. We just live in a very dark world, a world that is in desperate need of saving, and there's darkness in us And though we may not know the reason, specific reason for our suffering, I'll tell you, we do know what the reason for our suffering is not. It's not random. It's not purposeless. It's not because God does not love us or God does not care. In fact, God so loves us, the world, and hates evil and sin, even the evil and sin that resides in our hearts. He was willing to come down and enter into it. That's what Jesus meant when he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. I can save you out of darkness. I can teach you truth that will guide you and lead you and create relationship with my heavenly Father. And he says, you will have the light of life. He said, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. You see, Jesus got wholly involved with our darkness in order to do something about it. And the message of Christmas from the prophet Isaiah is, nevertheless, 
Nevertheless, yes, the world is a dark place. Yes, there's darkness in you. Yes, evil abounds. There's too much of it. Nevertheless, I have come to overcome the darkness. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And that is true, friends. One last thought about this text, and then we'll worship in song. But um, Christmas tells us that the light and the hope, they come from unexpected places. God is always doing this. This is actually a theme throughout all of Scripture. You know, time and time again, primogeniture, we've talked about this before. Uh, sons, for example, get born, and, and God will uh, overturn the, the cultural apple cart by having the second son be the son of uh, of uh, the uh, inheritance instead of the first son. Or, or God will use a woman to, to save and to bring deliverance rather than a man. And it, it's God's way of saying, don't ever think you know exactly what I'm up to. He, he will take things that the culture expects to happen and he will surprise that culture with the unexpected. What's so strange about how God sent his son is he sent him as a child and he sent him through Galilee. Isaiah 9.1, in the past he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That's that area north up there in the area of Galilee. But in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations by way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Now the reason why this is strange is because Galilee was sort of a despised place. And especially Nazareth in Galilee where Jesus grew up and Jesus came from. There was a common idea back then, namely that Nazareth was so backwater, so podunk, that so unimportant, so completely irrelevant as a town that nothing good could ever come out of there. We're told early on in Jesus' ministry in John 1, it says, Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Come from there, Nathaniel asked. Well, come and see, <laughs> said Philip. You see, that part of the country was looked down upon. It just didn't matter. It's kind of like today. We know where great things happen. We, we know where great people come from. They, they come from places like Princeton or Harvard or Yale or Cambridge or Oxford, places of great learning, places full of brilliant people. And great things happen in places like Washington, D.C. or New York City or London or places of power, places of influence. They don't come from or happen in places like Nazareth. And this is how our world thinks. It's how we think. Some places matter and some people matter, but other places and people don't. That's exactly why God, I think, sends his son as a little baby, born to poor parents, born to an unwed mother, lying in a feed trough, raised in podunk Nazareth. It's the way God cancels cancel culture. It's exactly that. He wants us to know there is hope. I will bring hope, but it won't come from where you think it's going to come. It comes from unexpected places and unexpected people. Our world is always writing people off. Cancel culture. 
God can't help. God isn't real. The Bible is silly and stupid. Saviors don't come from Nazareth. Your darkness is never going to change. Get over it. Stop asking the big important questions. You see, God reminds us in sending his son Jesus that he loves to do the unexpected. In fact, he loves to do the impossible. He loves to go into situations that look the most hopeless, deal with people who are the most unlovely and undeserving, a little parenthesis, that's you and me, and do the most unexpected miracle. Things like resurrections would be one. And so, therefore, light and salvation, you see, came through Galilee, not Rome. It came through a carpenter's family, an unwed mother, in an unpretentious manger. Hope came through uh, announcement to the shepherds, to Gentile astrologers, not kings, not philosophers. And the most unexpected miracle happened. The light of Jesus, that is the gospel, has been growing and spreading ever since. The life, the death, the message, the resurrection of Jesus, that gospel is the hope of the world. And this means that no matter where you're from or what you've been through or what you've done or how hopeless you think your situation is, God can cause his light to break through into your darkness. He does this all the time. Christmas reminds us that, yes, the world is a dark place. Nevertheless, nevertheless, light has dawned and hope has come. A child was born, a son was given, and he will bring justice and peace. He will defeat evil and darkness. Because of him, death will not have the last word. And therefore, therefore, if you know this son, son of God, if you follow Jesus of Nazareth, you literally have nothing to fear. Your hope is rock solid certain because it rests on nothing else, no one else but him. And because of that, we can celebrate always. Even when we've got to be social distanced and wearing masks and only a few of us can gather. And even now, we can celebrate because nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. And one more thing, because that is true, we get to be a light to people who are hopeless. Make sure you're doing that. Make sure you seize the opportunities that Jesus gives you to represent him well by loving or by serving others. Care for those around you that may be living in this dark world and feeling deeply a sense of hopelessness. What could you do? Invite them to the Christmas Eve service with you. Tell them they can spread out as far as they want. They can build a fire over in the Roman Catholic field across the street. We don't care. But just come join us. Come sing the carols that sing about this hope that we know is true and that we know is certain. Be a friend to them. Find a way to pray for them and serve them. 
and to be a light, the light of Jesus to someone who needs that light. Let's pray. Father, we can not even begin to fathom how much more we have because of you, who you are. It is true, God. Christmas is true. Jesus really did come, really did enter this dark world, and really is the light of the world. And because that is true, there is hope no matter what's going on in our lives. Lord, for these moments now as we gather together as a body and as we sing songs and as we meditate on the hope we have in you, I pray that your light would break through into our darkness. Lord, shine through. You are the hope of the world, Jesus. Thank you. May we be a light to others and point them in your direction. We pray in your name. Amen.